pastor's message this morning is taken from Romans chapter 16, verses 14 through 21, and the title of the sermon is, The Word of Christ Sent, Disobeyed, Believed, Fulfilled. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold, and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was manifest unto them that asked not for me. But to Israel he saith, all day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are humbled to read what we just read. We're humbled to hear that in fulfillment of your word, we see both the unbelief of Israel and salvation that has come to the Gentiles through the word that you have given, the word that has been preached, the gospel, the word of God, the word of Christ, the, the righteousness by which faith speaks. Lord, it's gone throughout the world, and it, it's here now in the world. And I pray that this morning, Lord, that word would be sent again, sent, sent by the mouth of this preacher, to the hearer, Lord, bring faith, Lord, to the hearers this morning. Increase our faith to those who are your children and bring saving faith, Lord, by grace and through the new birth that the Holy Spirit brings. Lord, even today, be merciful to us who are sinners. And we know, Lord, that your mercy is not delegated to our timeline. We know that we cannot put any limits on it. We know this as it's exemplified in Scripture that even the thief on the cross, in the moment that he recognized his sin, in the moment he recognized Jesus by faith, Jesus announced, today you will be with me in paradise. What a joy that that grace is so sufficient to save a sinner such as him. It's also sufficient to save us. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. While under the ire of the synagogue and, as it were, pleading for his innocence, Peter said this in Acts chapter 4, 11, and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Who were the builders there? 
The builders that he was talking to were his fellow Israelites, according to the flesh. And this Jesus was rejected by them, especially the leadership, but the whole multitude which cried out, crucify him, crucify him, albeit unknowingly rejected the whole infrastructure that they were observing. That whole infrastructure was built to bring the good news into the world, to bring Christ into the world. And yet Christ, he said, had become the cornerstone. And that same cornerstone, the Apostle Paul said, at the end of chapter 9, was the means whereby Israel tripped up and did not attain to the righteousness of God. Because, Peter says, as he goes on there in Acts, there is salvation in no other, no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which by, by which men must be saved. It's only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, Jesus is Lord, and Jesus is Lord especially, last week we learned, of the Jews and Gentiles who believe the gospel. In Christ, there is no distinction. Jew, Gentile, who your parents were, doesn't make a difference for eternal life. Only Christ makes that difference. We are defined by him before God. For those who call upon him, here is the truth. You will be saved because he is one Lord. He is Lord of all who call upon him. Therefore, all, whether Jew or Gentile, who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Verses 9 and 10. What a promise we've received in Scripture. That salvation includes salvation from hell, from the wrath of God that we deserve but because of our sin. And that salvation also includes all the benefits that come to us, many of which we read in our responsive reading in Colossians this morning. And there are innumerable more. Because they don't end in things, they end in the person of God himself. So the person, that is the lordship and the work of Christ, his cross and his resurrection, is the essence of what Paul has meant by the gospel all along in Romans. It's what he means by the word of faith, that phrase, the word of faith in chapter 10. Therefore, it is to these, to this Christ, that sinners must come for salvation and must call upon. It is him alone and no one else that we must call upon. And everyone who calls upon him, to, to them, they will not be disappointed. God is true to his word to save. And yet, this is where I want us to be today again. I want us to go all the way back to Romans 9, 6, where Paul says this in concern with Israel's unbelief. He says, it is not as if the word of God has failed. You see, all the while, chapters 9 through 11 is concerned with that. He's concerned with undergirding our faith, the assurance of it, the assurance of our salvation, that in Christ we will not be disappointed, we will not be put to shame, because underneath that is the word of God. And if the word of God has failed, then we don't have hope, we don't have assurance, we can't have confidence. The very thing that Paul intends to bring us in Romans is that the gospel, in the gospel, is bound up our every hope, 
our every comfort, our every assurance, our ever or everlasting life, you could say, and our hope that we will not be condemned. Everything is bound up in it, and we can be assured in it. But we cannot be assured in it if God's word has failed. And one of the ways that it was in, encouraged or the contrary word to the Christian community was if the gospel is true, that means for the most part, Israel is not saved. And that's what Paul is concerned with this morning. The context of the entirety of chapters 9 through 11 is important for us when we see our text this morning. And we go to verses 14 and 15, verses that are so familiar to us, if you've grown up in the church, that it will astonish us the way that Paul uses these verses in the context. And so let's go to those. Number one this morning, the word of faith preached, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? All that is very logical. There's a logical question in each one of those. And he continues, and how shall they preach and accept they be sent? This is four questions that are in reverse logical order. The sending, the preacher, the hearing, and the believing. These are all logical questions bound up in an order that Paul is concerned with. And it's capped off by an assertion of the value of the one who brings such good tidings. And this is the value of the person, that even his feet is be are beautiful. Now that was an old, it's a reference in Isaiah to the one who in terms of bringing news of Israel's return from captivity, bringing news to God's people that they were to be returned from captivity. And you're looking out and the watchmen are seeing this person who, even as they run upon the mountains, their feet are, as it were, giddy with the good news and the excitement that God is bringing his people out of Babylon, so to speak. And so even his feet is beautiful. Feet are not generally beautiful. Are they? Yesterday, I was working on, on painting our, the inside of our house with my father-in-law, and I made the mistake of wearing slippers. And of course, I had a mask on and a ventilator, or, or whatever that's called, the, the, the Darth Vader thing where you breathe, and it... Respirator. respirator, thank you. Tim knows there. I had this on, and yet I didn't cover my feet, and I was just disgusting. I had red dirt, I had white paint, I had primer, everything. And I, could, I was thinking, this is not beautiful. Feet are not generally beautiful. And our, my, I can't go into detail about my own feet. It will gross you out. But that's the point. Feet are often gross. Why do we take our slippers off, right? Because we wear those so that our feet are protected, but our feet aren't much better over here, especially if you're working in dirt. And yet this news is what makes the feet beautiful. It's the content of the message that makes the feet beautiful, isn't it? And so what we see here in what the apostle speaks is something that is of logical necessity. For people to call upon the name of the Lord, they must first hear 
or they must first believe, and for them to believe, they must first hear, and for them to hear, they must have somebody preach, and for that person to preach, they must have somebody sent. Somebody must be sent. The Greek word for sent there is apostello. We derive apostle from a similar word in the Greek. And this is one who preaches, the one who is sent by God to preach this good news. And for the most part, we have grown up and we've heard these verses at every missions conference. We hear these verses when it comes to ordination and ordaining ministers for the, for the gospel ministry. And rightly so, we hear them. But very often do we not hear these, or too often we do not hear these, in the context for which Paul is speaking them. But when we remember what has come before, namely the context that Israel is in unbelief, and then we see what Paul says afterwards, we see that, yes, while Paul is drawing a a necessary conclusion on how the gospel is to go throughout all the world, his purpose here is broader than that. And we see that as we move to verses 16 and 17. Number two, Israel in unbelief. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. So in response to what he says about salvation coming to Jews and Greeks, and what he says about the sending and the preaching and the hearing and the believing, he says they haven't. They haven't. And I believe that they here regards especially Israel, because that is who he's speaking about in unbelief, In these chapters, 9 through 11, that is the primary and the urgency that he speaks with. For Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah here, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed? That is, what we've already preached, they have not believed in. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So I take Paul as speaking of Israel's unbelief, and we know that from verse 19, he says, there did Israel not understand. But we also know that through the broader context, and we'll look into that more. Verse 16 implies that Israel did hear the gospel, that the righteousness based on faith or the word of faith was something that they have heard. And I think that we could go back to Peter in Acts chapter 4. Who was he speaking to? He was speaking in Jerusalem. He was speaking to the leadership. We could go back to Jesus' ministry. What did he do? But he went to the house of Israel first. and Preached to them. We could go back to John the Baptist. But I believe here that the apostle knows that. And he says, listen to what the prophet said. Namely, Isaiah. The prophet, that is your scriptures, assumed that your people have heard but would not obey this word that was preached to them. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from from us? And yet I want to talk about that first phrase. Because it's important that we understand that the gospel preached The word of faith proclaimed is not a suggestion for sinners to believe in. When a preacher and when we 
convey the truth about the person of Christ, that he is Lord, and tell people what he has done, namely he died and he rose again to save sinners, when we tell them that, we are demonstrating that this is the only way of salvation and we are committing to sinners a command upon them to believe for salvation, to accept, to receive the Son of God. How do we know that? Well, he uses the phrase, they have not all obeyed the gospel. And this is not the first time he's used that. Romans 1.5 says, through whom, that is through Christ our Lord, that's verse 4, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith. The very person of Christ demands that when he is preached, those who hear that message receive the Son, believe on him. For his sake, among his name, I'm sorry, for the sake of his name, among all the nations. That is, all the nations, it is incumbent upon those whom we are sent with the message of the gospel to obey that message by believing it. Again, in chapter 6, verse 17, the apostle says, But thanks be to God, he gives the grace. That's why he says, Thanks be to God, that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. That's saving faith in chapter, nine, or chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Saving faith agrees with God here to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And here's the gospel. And so thus, there is no confusion as to the necessity or command of faith. Paul says again in Romans 16, 26, but, and he says the mystery of the gospel is he's concerned with, but the mystery of the gospel has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations, that's important for our context today, according to the command of the eternal God. To bring, and here's the end of that command, to bring about the obedience of faith. To believe the gospel is to obey the gospel, is to bow to the truth of God in Christ Jesus for salvation. Another way the gospel is spoken of often in the New Testament is the word of truth. The word of truth. And to those who do not obey it, do not believe it, there is no salvation but wrath, as the apostle says in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, and listen to this with sobriety, have you believed the gospel? When he is revealed, and he is going to be revealed, and Paul says in Acts 17 that when he is, at that time he will judge the world in righteousness, and so it is now incumbent upon everyone, God commands everyone, Everywhere he commands them to repent, which is the opposite end of the coin, the opposite side of the coin of faith. But when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Those who have believed are in contrast with those who are under the wrath of God and will be judged when, God, when Christ returns because they did not obey the gospel. Beloved, we do not just invite sinners 
to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord, and it is incumbent upon every sinner to confess him as such, because that's his, that is who he is. We do not just invite them. It is a command of God to kiss the Son, to kiss him, to reverence him, to love him, to receive him. The only way you do that is when you believe on his name. And so with, this is not a suggestion. Those who do not kiss the Son, God is angry with and will perish in the way. This is a word of exhortation for us. Do not take the gospel lightly. Do we take it lightly? If you take it lightly, you'll take it lightly as to what it demands. And then you'll take it lightly as to what it offers. And you'll take it lightly as to what it gives. I believe that God's people do not take Christ lightly in any way, in any form, that he comes to us. But see what the prophet said here. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you know where that's quoted? That's quoted in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 1. And that's no coincidence, is it? This is the clearest gospel presentation in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Not only that, but in Isaiah 53 is the clearest Old Testament example of justification by faith alone. And here, the apostle uses it to describe unbelief. Why does he do that? And I believe he does it to demonstrate that they, that is Israel, had the knowledge of the gospel, but also that their unbelief was foretold. I believe he has the same intention as the Apostle John does when he quotes this in his gospel. John 12, 37, we see that the, it, the Apostle there quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. But notice what he says afterward. He speaks of Jesus, that though he had done so many signs before them, that is, they, that is, the, the leadership in Israel, still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he had heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen to what John says. He goes on to say, therefore, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now that hardening of the heart I already referenced when we talked about Pharaoh in chapter 9. And I already said be ready for it in chapter 11 because that's exactly what Paul concludes of Israel's unbelief. But it's not as if the word of God was not preached to them. It was. And they did not obey it. And then he says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word of God. And the manuscripts there have both the word of Christ and the word of, of God. The formation of this verse, verse 17, harkens back to verses 14 and 15, where the, no one can call upon the name of the Lord unless they believe, and no one can believe unless they heard, and no one can hear unless someone preaches, and no one's going to preach unless they're sent. This verse harkens back to that truth. 
And we can attribute, attribute the words of Christ here broadly to the story of Scripture as it's fulfilled in Christ, but it most likely concerns the gospel itself, which Christ is the content of, the gospel of God concerning his Son. I think Paul is concerned with Israel's rejection of God's Son as the word God gave concerning salvation. This is how they have failed. This is what they failed to obey. That is the word of Christ. And having rejected Christ, they did not obey the gospel. And for this unbelief, there's no excuse. Number three this morning, the word of faith was preached to Israel, verse 18. And the apostle asks again, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Again, here they, I believe, regards primarily Israel, but there's a broader context here again. As he says, the words have gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Paul is quoting here Psalm 19, verse 4. Anybody know what Psalm 19 is? The beginning of Psalm 19 is a, is a text regarding what we call general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth shows forth his handiwork. He speaks of general revelation, that is what God has created in nature, as a language that everybody understands and the whole world understands it. And so Paul is quoting here that that revelation has gone into the whole world and we have heard it. We have heard it. But here he's quoting it in parallel to the gospel proclamation. And because this is regarding general revelation, that is what Paul is quoting, many commentators and many uh, scriptural scholars have said what Paul is re referring here is to the, world, the word that has gone out to the Gentiles. And yet I don't think that's what he's saying here, necessarily. There's two problems if Paul means that they, by asking the question, he asks, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. And then he quotes uh, Psalm 19.4. There's two problems with that regarding merely the Gentiles. First, it doesn't fit the context of the entire chapters 9 through 11. It's not the Gentiles' unbelief that's Paul's concern. It's Israel's unbelief in these chapters. That's Paul's primary concern, and he's consistent with it even in the narrow text, and we'll see that more as we continue. But second, if general revelation is the means of proclaiming the words of Christ that is special revelation, then no one needs to be sent. No one needs to go into the world to preach. Everybody has enough knowledge or enough uh, revelation for them to hear and to be saved. But that's not Paul's point in this text. So why is Paul using Psalm 19.4 to say that they have heard and they have indeed had somebody preach to them? I think he uses this text, Psalm 19, about general revelation and its spread to describe just that, the spread of the gospel. At this point, when Paul is writing, the gospel has already gone to the known parts of the world to the most, for the most part. But here's more, at, I think, narrowly what he's referring to when he says, they have all heard. He is saying that Israel has heard. Your people have all heard. Because this word has gone to them, first in Jerusalem, then in Samaria, and then throughout the uttermost parts of the world. They have heard it. There is no excuse that 
I didn't hear about Jesus. So who is this Jesus? <laughs> Every town that, Jesus, that Paul went to, he went to the synagogue first. And that was usually why he ended up in the next place, prison, in every town he went to. Because they didn't like it in the synagogue. They did not like the word of Christ there. Not always. Sometimes it was the idolaters. Sometimes it was the pagans. It was the idol worshipers. So this, Paul is drawing an allusion to the words of Psalm 19.4. And he's alluding to the spread. And he's saying the words of Christ has been spread. And for the most part, Israel has heard and they are not believing it. They are not obeying the gospel. Is what I believe his purpose is. Romans 10, 12, and 13. Here's the voice. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And here is the truth, is that Israel have not believed. They have not obeyed. And so number four, I think this is where he concludes, and this is where we conclude. Israel's unbelief in accordance with the scripture and our salvation in accordance with the scripture. Verses 19 through 21. But I ask, did not did Israel not understand? And here's where I think Paul is explicit with his explanation that it's Israel's unbelief all along that he's referring to. And he says, did they not understand? And the answer is no, they did not understand. Yes, they truly heard what the prophet said and they should have recognized the words of Christ, to be in fulfillment, not in contradiction to God's plan. They should have recognized Christ in his ministry. They should have recognized Peter in his, when he got up and he preached in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter five, 4, when he was on trial, they should have known. And they should have known when James was in Jerusalem, pouring himself out for the gospel's sake. They should have known when, P, when Paul went into every city, the synagogue, and preaching the gospel. They should have known, but they did not Understand, because they did not have faith. But, he says here, in regards to that, verse 19, again, at the end, first Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation with a foolish nation. I will make you angry. Well, this is very strange. Paul asked the question, did, I asked, did Israel not understand? And then he quotes Moses, whom they pretend to follow and agree with. And what he quotes from Moses is that Moses, as a prophet, says, they will not believe. Listen to what he says. I will make you jealous. Who is that you? Moses is speaking to Israel. The word of God, I will make you jealous of whom? Those who are not a nation. That not a nation, Ephesians chapter 2, is Gentiles. First Peter chapter 2 is Gentiles. I will make you not a nation. Think of Hosea, what Paul quoted at the end of chapter 9. You were not a people, Gentiles. Now have become the people of God. And now he's quoting Moses. You were not a nation, 
with the foolish nation. That's us, and believe it, (laughs) we are the foolish nation. I will make you angry. Well, how are they jealous? They're jealous in their unbelief. They're jealous because, and this is God's purpose, in their unbelief, God has made a people who were not a people. Vagrants, vagabonds, worthless people. Our righteousness was that of menstruous rags. That's the Hebrew. That's what it means. We had nothing to commend ourselves before God, and now we are the people of God, and not just Gentiles, but Jews also who are in Christ, through Christ. But he's quoting Moses here to make it clear from Deuteronomy 32.21, for your sake, that he was making Israel jealous. And this is where their hostility against the church came from. You're telling me that our God gave someone we don't recognize as our Messiah for your salvation? Paul's saying for yours too. But you stumble over him. You're blind. And he did it for this purpose. That in your unbelief and your disobedience, you would become jealous. Well, why is that? We'll see in the next chapter. We'll see in chapter 11 regarding their jealousy. But I want to continue in this frame. Paul quotes Moses, and I want us to have this in mind. This is theological categories here. And that's why I pointed out. Paul has Moses, that is the law, in reference to fulfillment regarding Israel's unbelief. Let me say that again. Paul quotes Moses in reference to the fulfillment regarding Israel's unbelief and the Gentiles' inclusion into the people of God. Now he quotes the prophets. So he's quoted the law, if you would. If categories of of Old Testament scripture, you had the law, you had the prophets. Okay? Now he quotes Isaiah, verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say in Isaiah 65.1, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Who are those, you think? Well, surprisingly, in context, it seems, back in Isaiah 65.1, it seems like those would be Israelites in that context. But here, he is certainly speaking of Gentiles. I have been found by those who did not seek me. And how did they find what they were looking for? Here's the answer. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. It's through the revelation of Christ. It's through the manifestation of Jesus Christ that we as Gentiles, it is through the power of the gospel that we have found what we weren't looking for. Here Paul once again applies a prophecy that seems to concern only Israel in the context in which it was given to the Gentiles. And this comes in contrast to what the prophet of, says of Israel in Isaiah 65, 2, of which Paul quotes concerning Israel in verse 21. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying or contradictory or speaking with contradiction of my word. They, they disbelieve and they actually speak in contradiction to the word of Christ is his point. In fulfillment to Isaiah, I have held my hands out all day long to that people. What do we see? What's God's purpose in all of this? His central purpose in this is this. God's word has not failed. 
You see how it hasn't failed? Do you see it? Now, we must keep in mind Paul's assertion in chapter 9, verse 6, that the word of God has not failed. He has been defending that and affirming that all along. The way he does this is in chapter 10 is by showing the true way of attaining the righteousness of God. How is that? Through doing the law? Christ is the end of the law. It's not through the law. It's not through the law at all. It's through trusting the person and work of Christ, calling upon him whom God gave as the means and the only means for the salvation of sinners, Jew or Gentile. And by demonstrating with Scripture, the apostle, that only did, not only did God foretell of the way of salvation beforehand to Israel, but also he revealed through Moses and the prophets that they, in fact, Israel would not believe the gospel. Here's two truths that are proven in chapter 10, in, in these texts even today, for our, for our edification and for our encouragement of the faith. Do you need encouragement that the word of God is true? It's true even as Paul is unraveling these things. Here's the first, here's the first true, truth. Israel's condemnation in their unbelief is just in that they've heard the gospel, but not with the hearing of faith. They did not call upon the name of the Lord, and that unbelief accords, listen to this, it accords with God's prophesied word concerning them. Here's, here's the, the argument. If we're not saved, then God's word is not true. And here's Paul. God's word is true. That's why you're not saved. Do you see that? That's exactly what he's saying here. He said it in the end of chapter 9. He is the cornerstone, the stumbling block. That was scripture he's quoting to them. This is why you do not believe. You stripped over the one God set in Zion. He quotes scripture to them at the end of chapter 9. At the end of chapter 10, he says the same thing. Your unbelief is in accordance with the word of God. What a startling and sober reality. That for the most part, Israel has been blinded. Even while God was preaching to them the good news, holding his hand out to them, and they are a contrite and hardened people for the most part. And this is true even to this day, beloved. There is a remnant, and every Israelite who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And we need to preach to them that the Messiah has come. But for the most part, Scripture is affirmed. In every part, Scripture is affirmed in their unbelief now. And we will see in chapter 11, as Gentiles, do not boast because of that. Do not boast in our position that we have been brought nigh, and most of them have not. And I won't preach that now. But the word of God stands in Israel's unbelief. Secondly, that's not all that he said. The word, of also, the, the word of God also stands in your faith. In that you have believed. In that you have obtained the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Through faith in him. That you are saved by calling upon him in faith. Believing Gentiles have become one with the true people of God. There is no distinction. One Lord is Lord of all. One God is God of all. 
We've come into communion, those who have believed the gospel, though we were not a people, we are now part of that same commonwealth, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2, the true Israel of God. Being Abraham's children according to promise unto justification and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that too accords with God's faithful word, even as we have seen this morning. Moses and the prophets and the word of Christ demonstrate that the word of God is fulfilled when you have believed and become a child of God. You see that as God is saving people from their sins in this world today, here we are in Hawaii, this is part of God's fulfilled plan, realized in reveal in his word. And this is the mystery of all the ages. This is a mystery of all the ages that the Gentiles would be one with the true Israel of God. That's exactly what Paul is teaching here. He says it in the next chapter. We're not part of some different branch or some different object of salvation, of God's love. We are in the same root, in the same tree. I want us to realize that the measure of God's purposes for us is equal to the measure of God's purposes for Israel. It's come through the same revelation, through the same word. This is all in accordance with God's plan of salvation, which he's revealed through the law and the prophets and manifested it in Christ Jesus. We go out this door proclaiming a word that is fulfilled that every Gentile person or Jewish person we see in the world who comes to Christ will be saved. And that is not part plan B of God. That is his plan from the foundation of the world is that Christ would be the lamb slain so that he would bring all the nations of the world. What did he promise to Abraham? And you will all the nations of the world be blessed. And that promise comes to fruition through the Lamb of God. Through the offspring of Abraham. Through the promises of God that are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Rather that are all in him. Yes and in him. Amen. So as we think about this as Gentiles, most of us. We think about so great a salvation, that it was God's plan to transcend the ends of the earth to save us, to save you. And how did he did it? How did he did it? How did he do it? Somebody was sent, right? Somebody was sent. Somebody preached. Are you still concerned with that today? Coming back to verses 14 and 15. I'm coming back to verse 17 as we close. You know, we have a lot of problems in the world today, don't we? A lot of problems. And none of them are overcoming us if you're in Christ. Not one of them will overcome you. And here we have this message. Paul says it's the treasure of God. The gospel the word of faith, 
this righteousness, which is based on faith. And Paul says it must be sent and it must be preached. Brother Jason said, I have a shirt that has fish all over it. And what did Jesus say at the beginning of his message, on the beginning of his ministry? You're fishers. We're fishermen. Jimmy always says this. I'm a fisher of men as a Christian. That's what we are. This is the message that we still have, church. We have this message. And the world is not going to overcome us. And the gates of hell won't overcome us. Are we sending it? Are we still passionate about sending it into the world? You know, as far as I know, Christ says, the word of God says, occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. We feel a little heat. We feel a little oppression. We feel a little bit of persecution. And and all of a sudden, we tend to feel like we're unraveling. But no. How about more and more we seek first the kingdom of heaven? Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the worship of God in the world. And nobody will worship God who does not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I call upon him as Lord. And so this message needs to be sent. It needs to be a burden of our heart. And how does Paul begin this chapter? It is my prayer. My heart's desire in my prayer. So that's the first step. We need to pray that the gospel go into all the world. And then we need to be dedicated in every lawful means that we can to see that it is still going into the world. We need to be convinced in our minds that when we talk to our neighbors, when we talk to our family, when we talk to those who have heard the gospel, perhaps, or not heard the gospel, it is only the gospel that will save them so that we speak it. And so God willing that it will go to the ends of the world and it will be heard and it will be believed and sinners will call upon the name of the Lord and will be saved to the glory of God.